0: If you would take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We come to a, a new section here in Ephesians chapter 2. <clears throat> I've entitled this first message because I, as I looked at it, I, I tried to figure out how far I was going to get to get, get try to get. This morning, and all we're going to be able to cover is the first three verses, if we ever even cover them at all. But I've entitled these this particular section that we're going through salvation by grace. Salvation by grace is it working okay? This will be part one, and we're going to cover Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three. Now, everything that Paul writes to us under divine inspiration here in Ephesians chapter two has to be interpreted in light of what he has just established in Ephesians chapter 1. What's what's the truth? What's the reality that he has established in this matter of the salvation of sinners? Salvation in its entirety from election and choice in Christ as our surety and substitute before the foundation of the world to Christ actually coming in time as our mediator, representative, substitute, surety, redeemer, and savior, as well as God the Holy Spirit coming in time to each successive generation and regenerating, converting all those God the Father chose that Christ the Son redeemed. You say, what are you saying, Pastor? Salvation in its entirety from start to last is of the Lord. Now, we do believe. And we do seek to love our God. And we do seek to, to hold out and rest confidently and completely in Christ as the Lord our righteousness. But everything that we do, even enabled by God the Holy Spirit, it does not make up any part of our salvation. Salvation is in Christ, by Christ, through Christ, with no conditions on the sinner in any way, to any degree, at any time. And I know people have trouble with that. And I yeah, I deal with it constantly that, that men and women they 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 bombard you with this idea with when you say things like that, you're just you're saying and you're and that and all I can boil it back down to is this. That's all I can hear. They hear when when the unregenerate mind hears this message of full, free grace in, by, and through Christ Jesus alone, they hear what? You're saying we can do whatever we want to do. Now, ask yourself this question. Because this is personal. When you hear that message... Salvation full and free in Christ, by Christ, through Christ, not conditioned on anything that I've done in the past, anything that I'm doing today, or anything that I will do in the future. What thoughts does that bring to your mind? Do you sit here this morning in Grace Baptist Church, or if you're out there listening to us on the Internet this morning, when you hear that message, do you think, well, goody, 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 I can do whatever I want to do now. Is that what you hear? As as one bought by the blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't you want to, to do everything you possibly can to glorify and honor God in both your body, mind, spirit, and soul, don't you? I hope, th- I hope we all do. I, I, w- I want to honor God in everything that I say, everything that I do, all my actions toward Him and my actions toward my fellow men. Don't you? Well, let me ask you this. Do you think you've measured up in any capacity, in any of those things that you want to do? A verse came to my mind this week, and I went back and I looked at it. And and this is the the reality of the child of God. This is an Old Testament statement of Romans chapter 7, verse 24 and 25. Solomon in his wisdom said, Who can say, I have made my heart clean? I am free from sin. In other words, I've stopped. Can any of that would just a question that can be answered in the positive or negative? How's it always answered? Who can say they've made the heart clean? Nobody. Who can say that in, in their actuality, in their life, that they're free from sin? And we can say we're free from sin in Christ, but we're not free from it. I, would, yeah, I I always say that, but then I always, it always stops when it comes out of my I almost started to say again, I wish I was free from sin. If, if, I, was, if, I, was, if I was, I'd be the most self-righteous person on the planet. It's just our nature. And all you've got to do is look at and listen to men and women as they talk, and you know that self-righteousness is the driving force behind what they say and do. They have not been taught of God what sin is and what they are and what Christ did. And they have not come to see that God justifies one group only, ungodly. And here's the thing, you're not getting out of that group of ungodly just because you're saved. It's still there. (laughs) Do you not know that? Do you not feel that? Do you not struggle and groan with that every moment of your life? Yeah, there's no clearer picture in the entirety of the scriptures. A clear testimony in God's word concerning salvation by grace alone than Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. Every religious person you know they can, for the most part, and probably you too. They can quote. Can you quote Ephesians two, verse eight through ten? You know what it is. Everybody knows. I don't care whether they're Armenian or Calvinist, Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, Pentecost, Presbyterian, all of them. Everybody can Just like they can quote John three sixteen. They can quote Ephesians chapter two, verse. I can quote verse eight for sure. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that's as far as they get. <laughs> We're going off the rails here for just a minute, but that, that don't stop with verse 8. <laughs> that not of yourself. What's not of yourself? Well, I know the grace of God's not of myself, but we're talking about a specific thing. You're saved by grace through faith. That not of yourself refers to what? Faith. It. Faith. My my trust, my reliance, my belief in the grace of God, God had to give me that. The gift of God, not Of works. Not of works. Because here's the problem. If it was of works, this would occur. He said it's not of works, lest any man should boast. Because if it was of works, what would every one of us do? That old self-righteous Pharisee would come out in us. I thank God that I'm not a murderer, or a liar or a thief, or not like this publican, right? So he, he gives us in these verses, verses one through verse 10, He tells us by God the Holy Spirit, that sinners by birth, by nature, by practice, and even by choice, are made actual partakers in this present world of God's salvation, freely given in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not something we're waiting to get. Huh? We possess it. We have it in the hand. <laughs> yeah. It's ours. But now here's the thing: these sinners, you and me included, if we've rested in Christ by God-given faith, in Christ is the Lord our righteousness. We were previously what? 36 years ago, I was standing in a pulpit. Over 36 years ago, I was standing in a pulpit preaching to a group of people that I loved after after the flesh. And I thought I was preaching the gospel. But in reality, what was I? I was dead in trespasses and sin. Think about that. Previously, you you know who energized me to do what I was doing? Satan. Driven and directed by Satan. Under the control of Satan. Might have been moral, might have been sincere, might have been dedicated, religious, beyond degree. Prayed a lot, a lot of words. Studied insatiably to the point that I neglected my wife and my children and I faulted my wife for not studying like I studied. And she couldn't study because what's she having to do? Taking care of the kids all the time. But I was doing my part. I was the better half. I was the man in the relationship. I was faithful. I was an enemy of God. And I was under the just condemnation, penalty, and guilt of God's holy law and justice. Alive, dead while I was alive. <laughs> A walking, talking, zombie religionist is what I was. You were too. I had nothing to recommend myself to God. And in reality, everything that I did, what it recommended me and demanded that I go where? I go to hell. I wasn't seeking the Lord, but I was seeking and following, just like you and just like everybody else by nature, a God of my own imagination, trying to meet whatever condition for salvation That we thought was necessary. You got to go to church. You got to tithe. You got to be moral. You got to be sincere. You got to be something different now than you were before. There's got to be some great change occurring in your life, morally and spiritually. Totally consumed. All of us were. Walking after the lust of the flesh and fulfilling the desires of the flesh. You say, I wasn't. What's Paul talking about? Walking after the flesh and fulfilling the desires of the flesh. Because, see, here's the thing. Religion skews us and steers us off the Scriptures and into, into philosophy and into ideology and into emotions and sentiments. And we've all been taught from our childhood up, what? Good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. And by nature, we buy into that. That's what, we, that's what we're raised up on. That's what we think. We readily agree with it. And so when we read passages about walking after the flesh and according to the prince, the powers of the air, the first thoughts that come into our mind regard who? Immoral people, right? We think that these people are walking after the flesh, the people that aren't going to church, who aren't tithing, who aren't moral, who are immoral. And they're included. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't go out of here. Don't listen and say, that that preacher doesn't think anybody's a sinner. Them people, he's okay in immorality and ungodly. That's just not true. They're included, but that's not that's not the whole gist to this thing. These descriptions that we're talking about, who does it include? It includes moral, dedicated religionists, even those to whom he was writing, who were both Jew in strict Jewish religion, and then the Gentile who were in pagan idolatry. They were all the same, from the Jew to the Gentile. And I'm going to tell you what, that's an accurate description, a scripturally accurate description of every sinner God has ever saved or ever will save. All of us came from that that cloth. That's why I tell you over and over and over again, as we walk through this world, we need to abide by what the Scriptures tell us as we look at men and women in this life. Think about where you came from. Remember the hole of the pit from which you were digged. I thought this week, I was out there walking on the pad, and I thought, you know, in the same way that Paul gave that description of himself before he what he was before the Lord brought him to true faith and true repentance, before what he said he was, I was a blasphemer. Well, hold on now, Paul. You were a, before a blasphemer? What was he? What was Paul? Saul of Tarsus. He was a Pharisee. Under divine inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, in in Philippians chapter 3, what did he say of himself before his conversion? Huh? Concerning the righteousness required by the law. What was I? He wasn't lying. Outwardly, blameless. But God don't look outward. (laughs) What does God say? God sees the motive. Why was Paul, Saul of Tarsus, striving so hard to be blameless before the law of God? You ever thought about that? They didn't tell me that in Sunday Bible school. Vacation Bible school. Why was he trying so hard to keep the law? Why did you try so hard to be the best that you could be before the Lord saved you by His grace? Why? Why did you do any of it? Because you thought by nature that it made the difference between life and death. And so you got to put your shoulder to the grindstone and push as hard as you can. And the thing is, you can't ever stop pushing. There's never any rest, never any cessation of work. Folk, God justifies the ungodly. He gives spiritual life to sinners who are spiritually dead. He, God, the God of all grace, He makes them accepted and He makes them fit and qualified for heaven based on one thing alone, the imputed righteousness of His dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that which He accomplished by His obedience unto death. But here's the thing, before God makes us partakers of his grace, we all without exception hate the light and we love darkness. We hate the light and we love darkness. We have no fear of God before our eyes and everything we know is a false salvation on condition on the sinner. Well, God actually makes us partakers of his grace. We know nothing about grace. All our thoughts concerning salvation, every single solitary one of them are legal or they're mercenary. In other words, they're they're based on something that we've earned in opposition to free grace. These truths concerning our real condition as lost sinners, Magnifies God's grace and exalts the Lord Jesus Christ as our mediator and surety. Those men and women who deny those truths or try to water down those truths, they give evidence of being in the very condition that they deny. Self righteousness, it'll always blind us to our need of pure grace. Religious pride will always pervert grace, and it will always insist on legalism. And By nature, we're so deceived by self-righteousness and pride, and we're determined to send ourselves and all who hear us to eternal misery. But here's the thing. There's always hope with God. There's always hope with God. God's grace gives life to the dead. He gives true faith. You think about this, true faith to idolaters. Gives repentance unto life to those who by nature are spiritually akin to Satan. And he gives liberty to those who are under Satan's power and control, and he does it freely with no conditions on the sinner. Just freely gives it through Jesus Christ our Lord. God, all grace, you know what He does? He sends you and me as His people into this world of unregenerate men and women to tell them. You know where to tell them? We're telling them that they are in such an awful condition spiritually, dead in trespasses and sin, enemies of God in their minds by wicked word, that they need the Son of God to act in their place and establish for them a righteousness that demands their salvation. That's their only hope. They need a righteousness that satisfies all the conditions of salvation. They need a representative to communicate to them all spiritual blessings and deliver them out of spiritual deadness and idolatry, out of Satan's power, out of Satan's control, out of Satan's family, without any contribution on their part. Now look at the depravity of our former condition here in verse 1. We want to start. And you, and you see, hath he quickened? Is in italics, so it wasn't in the original, but it's implied. We'll see that as we get on down through this. You hath he quickened, who were, who were dead in trespasses and sin. So if he says we were dead in trespasses and sin, what does that imply now for the justified saint? We're no longer dead in trespasses. Now, the ones that he's describing here, they weren't dead physically. <clears throat> so they must, of necessity, have been dead some other way. So how are they dead? They're dead spiritually. And when you think about this idea of spiritual death, it's twofold in reality. It's, first of all, it's legal death. And secondly, it's moral death. Legally, and, or objectively, by nature, we all owe a debt to God's law and justice we can't pay. Which means that by nature, every single solitary one of us, including God's elect, we are in a state of condemnation and wrath. We're alienated from God. We're morally and subjectively, every faculty of our being is energized and controlled by a powerful principle that directly opposes God's glory and salvation. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't display those qualities of character that men and women admire so much. We can love people. We can show kindness. We can give our time and our money, even to the extent that we appear righteous unto men. Hold your place there and turn over to Romans chapter 3. Let me show you the, what the scriptures give us is the best definition of spiritual death. Look at verse 9 and 10 here in Romans chapter 3. What then? Are we better than day? Romans 3, verse 9 and 10. No, in no wise, for we have proved before, we have before proved both Jew and Gentile that they are all under sin. Now, here's the first thing about. Spiritual deadness. There is none righteous. No, not one. What does that tell us? It tells us that by nature, every single solitary sinner, including God's elect, they're under sin, and why are they under sin? Because they don't have a righteousness that satisfies God's law and justice. Look at verse 11. There is none that understands. There is none that seeketh after God. What is that? By nature, we do not understand God's grace. We cannot. In reality, according to Ephesians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we can't understand it. And not only can we not understand it, we don't seek it, we want no part of it. All are religious to the, some extent, and all worship what? They worship a God of their imagination, the God of their mom or dad or grandma or grandpa. Look down at verse 18, because here's the problem. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What's the source of our depravity? There it is. There is no fear of God before. Before their eyes. In other words, what? There is by nature no reverence for, no respect for the glory and honor of God's redemptive character. The principle that controls our minds and our affections and our will is directly opposed to God being glorified in salvation. And this principle that's in us by nature, will never let us become subject to the law of God and submitted to Christ righteousness. We have a double need, all of us. First of all, we need a righteousness. And secondly, you know what we need? We need a new, more powerful principle of life, which Paul describes in this manner. Listen to this. To whom God would make known. There's our understanding. To whom God would make known. The riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. What's the mystery of God, of, of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles? Here's it, is. Which is Christ in you. What? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul told those at Rome in Romans chapter 8, verse 2, one of my favorite verses, for the law, the principle, that's what that word law means, the principle of, of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. What? At principle, that Christ, by his obedience unto death, did everything necessary to recommend me to God and save me by his grace. It hath made me free from the principle or the law of sin and death. Which one's that? The Mosaic covenant. All of it. And we can't contribute to it in any way, shape, our form is not dependent upon us. Look at verse 2. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now, now see, it, 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 he says, you were, you walked this way previously. You walked according to the prince of the power of the air. And he says, this spirit, it's still working now where? In the children of disobedience. God tells us in this verse that by nature, all without exception, even God's elect under the power and control of Satan. Look over at Luke chapter 11. All our faculties are energized by Satan. And like Satan, by nature, we are opposed to God being glorified in our salvation. Look at verse 21 and 22. He said, when a strong man arm keeps his palace, his goods are in peace. Who's that strong man there? That's Satan. But, this is God's grace, when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor, wherein he trusteth and divideth his spoils. What's that? The power of God's grace has to set us free, has to bring us out of this condition that we're in by nature. Look at verse 3 of our text. Turn back over to Ephesians 2, verse 3 among whom also we all had our conversation. That word conversation means our behavior. In time passed in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Notice how Paul includes himself in this group of people that formerly were this way he says among whom we all even as others so he includes himself in it along with all the Jews and Gentiles, all of us by nature which means by birth by natural generation and you know what that proves to me you know I all my life I lived under this idea this idea this notion that men and there was some sort of age of accountability in it young babies, until they reach whatever that mythical age of accountability was. And that was the thing. It was, you talking about a sliding scale. It was a sliding scale. It went from birth. Some said, well, it ends at seven. Some said, no, it ends at 12. Some says, no, it ends at 21, I guess, when they reach drinking age. So we got a 21-year spread where children can do whatever they want to, and somehow, some way, at some point in time, they'll grow out of it. Listen, we don't develop into this condition that we were formerly in. We were all born. Every one of us were born by nature with a corrupt evil principle that loves darkness and hates light. How do you know that? The scriptures tell me so. Listen to David. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, i tell you what. David with Bathsheba had a sinful relationship that resulted with a child. But everything I can find out about David's mom, David's mom wasn't having an adulterous affair when she conceived him. He's not implying that somehow his mother illicitly had him as a child, that she was a woman of the night. That's not what he's talking about. What's he talking about? He's talking about my mother was a sinner, her mother was a sinner. Everybody's mother was a sinner all the way back to where? The first mother, Eve, in the garden. And just like it passed from generation to generation, he's saying the same thing that my mama was, you know what I am? Me too. Listen to this one. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. People say, well, that's just the wicked. Uh, So in other words, Adolf Hitler, when he was born, even even religious people admit that that dude was a bad dude. If anybody deserved hell, he did, right? right? He went forth from the womb speaking lies. No, that's not what he's talking about. What does he mean by this? By nature, what are we? What did he say we were formerly? He's saying that every one of us, by nature, when we come into this world, what do we do? We immediately begin to act out in our lives what we are by nature. All of us. I've asked this for years, since I I guess when we first come to hear the gospel years ago back out at Heiko, Who taught you? Who taught you how to lie? Huh? When I think about the first time that I actually remember telling a lie, I know it probably happened before that. I'm pretty sure I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again. I was about eight years old, and my mama loved ivies. And she had these big ivy pots in our formal living room and dining room that nobody went into. We were supposed to go in there and play because it had the pretty white carpet, you know. It was a room that nobody could use. But she had those ivies in there and these great big old cedar pots. And, you know, they were had that, that like a cat pole in it. My cat would love that. had a, like a four-foot cat pole on that thing, and that ivy had grown all around that climbing. It was a climbing ivy. It had like two or three of them in there. And me and my brother were in there, and we were playing. And we were, we were wrestling is what we were doing, Kim. We were in there wrestling. <laughs> probably had a pair of underwear on my head like I was a spoiler probably running around. <laughs> but we were in there wrestling, and Danny threw me, and I went across that ivy, and it snapped that pole. Mom was in the other room watching TV, and that <clears throat> it had a piece of wood through the middle of that pole. It snapped that pole off, and that ivy broke over, and it broke that ivy. And you ain't ever seen two boys. I don't remember a lot of my childhood, but I remember trying it. We tried popsicle six. We tried everything to stand that thing back up. But you can't fix what's broke, because I mean it broke the ivy off clean when I went across and it just like it mowed it off. Well mama come running in there. And she was looking around and she looked and saw her her ivies broke over. And she said, Who did this? Now, I was the one that went across the ivy, but you know what I did? Who that that point out? <laughs> Danny did it. <laughs> Didn't nobody teach me to do that? What was it? It was self-defense. Why do we lie? What, get caught in a situation. Even now, as a justified saint, and I guarantee you the come-clean portion of us ain't always coming clean. You say, oh, no, we won't. Look at King David. (laughs) What did he do to cover his lie? How far did he go? How far was he willing to go even as a justified saint? Now, that doesn't make it right. And that doesn't mean, well, I'm going to use that to justify my bad behavior. It's written for our admonition in our learning, it teaches us what? Don't do that. Isn't that what John said? My little children, these things write right I to you. He records David's sin to imply to us and tell us, don't sin because what? Sin has consequences even in this life. Think about what was the fallout from what David did. Uriah the Hittite died. That child died. Absalom killed his brother. Abnon raped his sister. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. You don't have to teach that to people. He went so far that he murdered. He murdered a man. A man that was a gracious, merciful king. A man whom God wrote twice. He's the apple of my eye. A man after my own heart. A man who said, wrote by his own pen, he wrote, as the deer panted after the water brook, so panteth my heart after the living God. And yet he lied to cover it up. That guy, yeah. I mean, you think about it. You ride the head was so faithful and loved David so much, and when he called him in, called him in, so he would be with his wife, so he would be confused enough that he couldn't keep up with time frame. But he thought if he can, if I can get him to be with his wife, then he'll think that the baby's his. And he gets up the next morning, and what does he find? Uriah's asleep at the gate. And David becomes indignant at him for not helping cover his own lie. Why are you here? It's not right for me while my fellow men are out in the battlefield fighting for you, King David, for me to not be with my wife because they can't be with theirs. And so David goes inside and he takes that pen and he writes that letter and he gives it to the captain and the captain opens it and reads it and he says, you take him and you put him in the hottest part of the battle. You think about the deception of this now and the deviousness of it. As he wrote this, put him in the hottest part of the battle, and when the battle's raging, back off and leave him. And he waits. Not to mourn over the fact, because he wanted Uriah dead. An innocent man, King David wanted him dead. They come and tell him, Uriah the Hittite is dead. What does he do? After his wife, that woman Bathsheba, who's pregnant with his child illicitly, after she's completed her mourning, what does he do? He takes her to himself. Problem solved. Oh, no. The problem is not solved. And I don't know the time frame. I was talking with somebody about this week. I don't know the time frame of it. Don't tell us how long of a period occurred between he had Uriah the Hittite killed, and when Nathan came to him. I know it was somewhere in a nine-month period, because she had Bathsheba has not given birth to that baby yet, and I don't read anywhere in anything of First and Second Samuel. I don't see anywhere where David's wrestling with all of that. If you can find it, find it for me. Where he's over there just, Oh, it's me. I've wronged you, Ryan. I've wronged Bathsheba. And I've wronged my wife, and I've wronged my concubine. And no grief, no pain, no agony. Nathan comes to him, tells him the story about the little ewe lamb. And when he hears that guy taking that one ewe lamb when he had a whole herd of them and kills that one to prepare for his feast, David became filled with wrath. And Nathan looks at him and said, David, you are the man. It came home, Kenny, right then. Huh? That's what we all are, buddy. The deepest, darkest sin that you can ever possibly imagine in your wildest imaginations, in your mind, you know where it resides at? It's in you and in me. The worst you can think of. You say, oh, no, it's not. I tell you what, <laughs> you don't know yourself. Be careful what you say you will not do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Word did he use here, he says, "In times past, in the lust of our flesh, it means an unlawful desire. And it includes immorality, but it's, it's not restricted to immorality. because you think about this, Satan's ministers, his preachers, what do they transform themselves into? According to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 14: 15. They transform themselves into preachers of what? Righteousness. Preacher, not, they're not preachers of immorality. The, the tenor of life mentioned here describes religious people who are opposed to the free grace of God in Christ. It's those who are trying, listen, they're trying their dead-level best to establish a righteous. He describes them this way. My brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, my kinsmen according to the flesh, is it what? That they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of the righteousness of God, because they ignored the righteousness of God, what are they doing? Going about to establish their own righteousness. They have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. But notice this last phrase, and we'll quit because I wanted to deal with this a little bit. He says, And we're by nature, we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Now, I said at the beginning of this lesson, when we get here to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through Uh, 10, you have to understand and interpret what we're saying here and what's written here by the Apostle Paul in light of what he's previously written. And listen to what he says of these people that he says, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. He says this, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him. What are we, holy and without blame before Him, in love, having predestinated us what unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself? Let me read you what Robert Hawker wrote on this phrase, because I, I, this pretty much sums up. And I, I looked at Gill, I looked at several other commentaries on it, and they all come to the same agreement on this phrase were by nature children of wrath even as others. Mr. Hawker wrote this. He said, It is impossible that such could ever have been the children of God's wrath, though when born in an Adam nature of a fallen state, were justly exposed to God's wrath. And but for their sonship in Christ and acceptation in Him must have suffered the punishment due to sin. But it should seem that the apostles' meaning here is they were by nature, now this is so important, they were by nature children deserving wrath even as others. And moreover by the fall were also of wrathful tempers and dispositions. And as Paul also elsewhere said of himself and all others like him, while in a state of unregeneracy, we're living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's Titus chapter 3, verse 3. He says, I thought it proper to state this to the reader for some for want of attention to this grand feature of our most holy faith in our grace union with Christ by God's choice from all eternity have been led away with the too common phrase of calling God's children as if they were heirs of hell and children of the devil. Blessed be God, that never was so. Though children deserving wrath, yet in Christ save with an everlasting salvation. And the gift of the Spirit is because they are sons not to make them sons, because you are sons. God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, what? Abba, Father. We're not children of the devil that somehow became children of God or morphed into children of God. We were. Listen, we, we have been heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ since he chose us in the person of our substitute and surety, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll come back next week. And we'll pick up in verse 4. You're dismissed, the worshiper.